0: Well, good, morning. good morning. I'm a little loud, a little loud. You just turn me down just a, a hair that would be great. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the first book of Samuel, chapter 11. First book of Samuel, chapter 11. We're going to continue our progress through the book of First Samuel and pick up where we had left off last week. I'm going to start reading today um, in verse 8. But as the sermon begins to unfold and I unpack it, uh, I'll be uh, going over some of the previous verses and some of the things that stick out, just so we can build a context um, and focus on what is happening in this event. Uh, Chapter 11, uh, verse 8, begins with, When he numbered them in Bezek, The children of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh, Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, you are the one and only awesome, magnanimous God over all the entire creation. Lord, this morning we would just ask God that you would just give us a hunger for you, Lord. And that the church Would develop an appetite, Lord, for your word and for communion with you, Lord. God, if there's one thing that we can walk away from is, is how devoted are we to our Lord and how much do we love our Lord and how much are we willing to sacrifice for our Lord. Lord, let us be the true church that's existing on this planet, Lord that is salt and light to all the dark places that exist in our lives. Lord, we need your help. We would ask God that you would clothe us in the full armor of God, not so that we could just go lay on the couch, but Lord, so that we can go out and face the enemy and be victorious. Advance your kingdom, Lord. We trust that you will do this through the preaching of your word and through the advancement of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So this entire event that's happening that we've read through, we started with up until verse 8 last Sunday. It really can be um, categorized in four points. It really covers the entirety of this chapter. The first point would be the demand. The second point is, you'd see, is, is desperation. Once the enemy makes a demand upon God's people you see God's people getting desperate, which is a good thing. Then we see the decree. We see the the help, the the looking out. You know, give us some days and and help us get the messengers, get get the message out there to the people and just hope and pray that God would send us a deliverer. And then deliverance comes. Deliverance comes. Rescue comes. They are rescued from their tyranny and they are rescued from their oppression. And we can see this pattern. we can look at this pattern that really I, I, I articulates the whole chapter, but this pattern really is the gospel. Think about it for a moment. The, the, the demands upon our life when we' are unconverted. think about that. the demands of the enemy to be his slave, to be his servant, to be under his dominion to be tied up in chains and cords of all kinds of sin, unable to rescue ourselves. And in that moment, each and every one of us who are truly born again remember that time of awakening in our own personal lives when God had showed us our condition. He showed us the pollution of our life, the depravity of our being, the offenses and the enormity of our sin against a holy God. And not only that, what it cost God in order for us to go free. The value and the enormity of God's grace being displayed upon His people. His mercy instead of wrath. We see the decree, we see the church of Christ in all of this. Yeah, they were looking for messengers, they were looking for a gathering, they were looking for some kind of community, they were looking for hope. But this idea of rescuing and this idea of having desperation, all is in context with the local church, the body of Christ. And then, of course, our deliverance, when Christ set us free and he saved us. He pulled us out of the very jaws of hell. Do you realize this? Could you imagine if you were to die in your sin and you were to fall under the holy displeasure of God for all eternity with no hope of escape? Could you imagine that? Just for a moment, examine your heart and examine and just contemplate on the wrath of God. I remember John Wesley, when he'd be preaching in the open air, he said he kept one eye on heaven and one eye on hell. Because it keeps us awake, it keeps us sober. This reality that men and women are perishing and they're going to hell. And that God in his mercy and his love, he saved us. Let's look at the first point. We're going to be covering a little bit of what we went over uh, as I said, as I started, of uh, the beginning of this chapter, and then we'll get to the climax, and then we'll finish. We want to first look at the demand. We've got to remember, bringing this back to um, uh, last week's sermon, um, we look at the demand of Nahash the Ammonite when, when he had camped around Jabash Gilead, and all the men of Jabash said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. This is saying they wanted peace, they wanted to make a, a peace treaty. And instead, was giving these horrid conditions. Nahash, um, he had answered. He Nahash the Ammonite. He answered them. He said, "On this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may gouge out all of your right eyes and bring reproach upon Israel." Second, then we see their desperation. The elders of Jabesh said to them, hold off for seven days before you start plucking people's eyes out that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, and then, and this is just a terrible thing to say. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. And just, you guys, you've got to put yourself... um, Into this entire situation, this is the first time a a, a king has been injected. This is the first time that, that, that the nation has experienced this reality, this transformation, this transition into having a king. Before we saw throughout the book of Judges, they'd raise up saviors. Every time things started getting bad, God would raise up a judge. But now we see that God has raised up a king. But we can see the apprehension here. We can see the apprehension. Is God going to raise up another judge to fight for us? No, but God's given us a king. Where is he? Will he come? Will he save us? Will he rescue us? And that really is the question that's being asked. And then we see the decree in in verse 4. So the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul and told news of the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. They're, I mean, they're terrified. They're horrified at this reality of the conditions of Nahash and what he plans on doing to disfigure their faces. I mean, just think about this. These days as they're in waiting, what in the world is going to happen to the point to where I, you know what, I have to be totally honest with you, I would probably lift up my voice and cry too. I can only imagine the oppression. You see, when we can really contemplate on how, how bad, not only just being oppressed and the oppression of sin, we then can understand the, um, how great the salvation is. A lot of times when we see just how awful it is, how rotten the situation is, we can appreciate the rescue that much more. And even in our own lives, when we see the law of God, the mirror of God, showing us how exceedingly sinful we truly are, we can totally appreciate our salvation and this is what's going on here they're in that breaking moment and they're waiting and they're hoping that rescue would come because at this point they're waiting in the balance and all they can do is just cry in verse 5 it says now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field he was, he was doing his farming, back to his farming. There really wasn't a whole lot going on at that period of time. Now, obviously there was, but he hadn't known about it yet. So he's out there doing his duties as a farmer, rolling up his sleeves and going to work. One thing we could say about Saul, he had a good work ethic. And when God brings leadership, good leadership into the fold, there better be good work ethic or it's frivolous and it's weak and it's worthless. And then and Saul says, what troubles the people? Why in the world are they weeping? Why are they crying? Because obviously he knows. He hears it. And they told him the words of the men of Jabash. And it seems to be the triggering point here that, that fuels uh, the, 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 whole, um, the whole change in what's, what's going on. To, to, to begin. The transition happens at this point when the spirit of God literally falls upon Saul. And it gives him the spirit of righteous anger, righteous indignation that came upon him. The Bible says that his his anger was greatly aroused. And think about this because this is the spirit of God that's totally just come over Saul. And this is really the spiritual muscle and, and, and who's overtaken him and given him this ability. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul when he heard the tidings and his anger was kindled greatly. The Spirit of the Lord evidently means here that it was the spirit of courage, of noble energy, of dauntless resolution, which was needed to meet the emergency that had risen. I just think it's so beautiful. I don't want to park here too long. So I know we did go over this a little bit last Sunday, but it's worth um, recognizing again is that the Lord grants his people, a, 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 if you could use this, an extra amount of his power that enables them to meet what it, whatever it is that they're, that they're confronted with. Whatever has risen up against them, God is going to empower his people to be able to either overcome that, take care of that, squash it, eliminate it, or be in a position to be able to suffer the consequences as a believer with the joy of the Lord upon their face. God gives us His Spirit for those particular reasons. When Jesus said, I'm going to, you know, I'm, when, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my martyrs. This is the whole idea of having the Spirit within you. So you would be ready to become a martyr. It's not to flop around on the floor on Sunday morning and have so-and-so make a big line and people falling over and, 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 and just making a big circus on Sunday morning. That's not why the Spirit was given. It's an empowerment to be able to go out into an apostate, dark, hateful, violent, perverted world and to be able to occupy and overcome and have victory because you cannot do that in the flesh, so he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, "Whoever does not go out with Saul and, of course, mentions Samuel for credibility, so it shall be done to his oxen." It's worthy to say he didn't threaten them with their lives. We're going to poke their eyes out if they don't come out. He did threaten their livestock, which was enough for any family to wake up and move. And it says the fear of the Lord fell on the people. First it fell upon Saul. Now the fear of the Lord falls upon the people and they came out in one consent. That's a beautiful thing when you see God, when when an emergency situation, when a crisis comes... And we don't all split off and run in separate directions like they did when Christ was going to the cross. When Judas came in to the camp and all the Roman soldiers and the, and, and the Jews came to arrest him. They all booked it, man. They were gone. There was no unity there at all. Christ was abandoned by everyone as he made his way to the cross. These guys came together as one man, as one consent. And there is nothing more beautiful in the church than when we can come together to fight against the foe. We never want to be divided. We always want to be together. This is why I can't understand why people don't want to be a part of a local church. I never could quite understand why they want to be a maverick or a rogue and run around out there. And they have no really protection, of course, Christ. But Christ has given them the church that they're rebelling against. They're not going to. They have accountability in the church. They have oversight. It's not perfect. We're all sinful. We all do stupid things, say dumb things, and act out in ways that we wish we wouldn't have. But the reality is is that we need the local church. And I know if you guys can probably testify, I can testify that we need each other. Like, I need you guys. I don't just want you. I do. But I need you. Like, I, I need the church. You know, and, and it's, it's one of those things where I just, I don't, I don't understand why people don't want to be a part of a local church. Because if you truly experience a biblical church, you're going to find out that there's nothing better outside of our, our home that's going to be with Christ, the people of God. And get to know the people of God. Love the people of God. Put yourself under authority. But have accountability. Live your life that way. It's a protective measure as well, and it only serves to help you. It's one man coming together. It's hard to say I'm one man with the church when you're not even in church. You're divided. You're on your own. I mean, how does that work? I mean, it's, it's, I understand the church universal. Don't get me wrong. There's Christians all around the world that make up the church universal. But there's a majority of the New Testament in the pastoral epistles that deal with the local church and how to function in the local church, how to live in the local church, how to behave in the local church. It's all written in Scripture. It's doctrinal. It's not an option. Trying to live alone, you're only going to get destroyed. Verse 8 says, When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So you got 330,000 people ready for battle help comes help arrives and if you're you're like me when i read that i just took a huge deep breath because what i do when i write i always try to enter into the world i always try to put myself in that place and i try to somehow siphon out um the people you know, what they were thinking, how I would have thought. You know, we, we we sometimes the verses can be like magical. Like these are just stories that never really happened. But they're stories that really happened to real people. And I try to put myself into that context and try to think how I would have felt. You know, how I would have felt if, if I was under that kind of pressure. Thinking that, you know, I'm not just going to go to jail. But someone literally is going to take a knife. And they're going to dig out my right eye. And then I hear these words that tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. What a relief those words must have sounded in the ears of the oppressed. Tomorrow when the sun's hot, you not might, or we're hoping, uh, we'll see if they feel like coming out or not. No, it's like you shall have help. It was a certainty of the Lord. The Lord is coming. The Lord is reigning. Your king is on his way. And he's making plans and he's going to thunder out against your enemies. You can rest assured of that. This whole idea of you shall have help really is deliverance they're going to be delivered. It's the same word that is translated salvation in 1 Samuel 11, 13. And it really means to save. These people are going to be saved. Now, I don't know about you, that moment when you repented of your sin and you came to Christ, there was almost that moment of utter relief. Like, oh, thank God. You know, for me, I was such a... I'm not going to go in and glorify my, my vile past, but I would say I was such a monster that when someone had actually spoken to me about the gospel, um, I didn't argue with them. I didn't try to disprove it. I just said, are you kidding me? That's true? And he said, that's true. When you come to Christ, your sins are forgiven. I mean, it didn't take me long. I was ready at that very moment. They go, do you want to go pray about it or think about it? I'm like, no. I need to start again. I need to be born another, one more time. Because I screwed up the first time. I'm a mess. And if I can be born again, I get it. Somehow, spiritually, I understood the gospel. I got it. I understood substitutionary death. I realized it. And I just was so grateful I was no longer under that burden. And I remember when I repented. I'm not kidding you. You know, people say, well, you just don't feel it. Some people don't feel it. I felt it. Like, I literally felt the weight come off me. I did. I felt different. The hairs of my arm, not everyone's going to have the same experience. But the, the weight come off my shoulder. I started getting, my voice started to shake because so I was about ready to cry. And the hairs of my arm stood up. And when I walked out of that little restaurant, I felt like a new person. I felt like all of that stuff is just gone. I just couldn't believe it. You know, um, and I believe how offensive it was. I began to tell all my clients as a personal trainer of what just happened to me. And about 80% of them (laughs) didn't appreciate it. I didn't know. I was just like, hey, you know, this is what happened to me. I'm so excited. I began to tell other people about what happened. It was delivered. You know, the rescuer comes and he delivers the people out of their bondage. You know, the messengers, that came and they, when they reported to the men of Jabash, it says that they were glad. They were glad. You know, you don't read anything about that up until this point. No one's glad. Everybody's miserable. People acting funky. The priests are wicked. Everybody's stealing. Everyone's lustful. Everything's greedy. No one trusts anybody. Everything's miserable. And then finally, for the first point in Scripture, you read that the people are glad. Can you imagine that? They're smiling. They're happy. They're relieved. This is, a, this is a huge point because this is what deliverance does to humanity. When you're delivered, we should have a sense of well-being, a sense of that, that, that we're free. We're free. And it's such a glorious thing. And don't take your salvation for granted. You know, think about it every single day. Every waking moment, think about what Christ has done for you to set you free. Proverbs 21.11 says, Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken at the proper time. Oh, man, you could say that again. That was spoken at the proper time. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. You know, it's just wonderful when, when, when God, despite the sinfulness of his people, will rescue them anyway. How many times have it been in your life where you're just utterly an absolute mess? Right, and you don't even know if you've repented of your sin or what's going on or you're entangled in one thing and you fall into another thing and you just think, man, I am so rotten. I am so vile. I'm not even going to pray. God doesn't want to hear my prayers. I am just, he wants to probably squish me. Anytime I'm going to be zapped, I can just feel it. And then, and then deliverance comes or something happens and you're thinking, why would you do that? to such a criminal like me? Why would you be so kind and merciful when all I've done is sin against you? All I've done is rebelled. All of I've, I've been backwards. And God blesses you anyway. And it shocks you. You know, because you're expecting to get destroyed. And then he blesses you. You know what happens after that? The deepest conviction falls upon you because you've realized he loves you. And you're sinning against someone that loves you very much. It hurts worse for me. It doesn't hurt to sin against a tyrant, but it hurts to sin against someone that loves me. And only wants the best for me. And has saved me. It 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 takes on a whole different, a whole different edge to it there. You know, you think about the the poor girl that was surrounded by the Pharisees getting ready to be crushed. You know, and, and you know, they're all picking up their stones and they're all this wanting to take a shot. You know, they bring they bring uh, they bring sinners to Christ to be judged, not to be saved. That's what Pharisees do. And they bring they bring this sinner to Christ, hoping that you know he would give the command to crush her, and obviously we know the story. We've heard it a million times. From what I gather, from what I've read, and I could be wrong. Um, people say all kinds of things, what he wrote, this or that, but I don't think it was he who cast, you, you know, he was not sin cast the first stone. I don't think it was a generalization of sin. I think he was talking about a particular sin that had to deal with the woman that they were involved in, and I believe that is what sparked them to drop their stones because they were an accomplice. Now it's all we all sin, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No personal accountability at all, right? Other people on the street call them out and they're like, "Well, everybody sins." No, so We're not talking about everybody. We're talking about you. That changes the whole story, doesn't it? You prioritize someone's life. When you stand before God, the Bible says God has fixed a day. He has set apart a day where you alone will stand before Him. You won't be with your husband. You won't be with your wife. You won't be with your pastor. You won't be with your friends. You'll be all alone. Naked, you come into this world, and naked, you most certainly will leave this world and stand before God alone. That's the truth. But then the sweet tidings of salvation ring in their ears. Their king is coming to save them. Reminds me of a verse in the book of Matthew, the fourth chapter, 16th verse, where it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and in the shadow of death, light has dawned. This is the first fruit of Saul's government. And that was the rescue of Jabesh Gilead from the Amorites. And oh, what a rescue it was. This is his first shot out of the gates. We know we can keep reading about Saul getting anointed, Saul getting anointed, Saul getting anointed, right? Thinking, my goodness, was the guy going to reign as king? Right? But I'll tell you something. You will not reign until the people respect you. You will not have any kind of authority over other people unless you are a man of action and not just a man of words. If you clutch to title idols, degrees, diplomas, whatever else, you think somehow people are going to respect you because you've got a certificate, you're wrong. They follow action. And this is exactly what happens. Saul breaks out his first mission is to literally crush the Ammonites and deliver his people. And this is exactly what he does. And what does this do? Makes a huge impression upon the people and adds credibility to his kingship. And this is the last nail in the coffin to put things right with him and the people. And that goes with any kind of authority. Authority is earned. It is. People will not submit to your authority If you're just a man of words and no action and you think somehow people are going to kiss your ring, you're wrong. People follow men who serve and submit and are humble and are active, being active. It's important to start well, brothers and sisters, and it's really important to finish well. Saul didn't finish very well. He ended up on the end of a sword, obviously, in suicide. But he started well. This was the ignition switch. This was the engine that drove him into battle. And it was, seemed to me by how it was written that the battle didn't take very long. God doesn't take, in Scripture, it doesn't talk a lot about, it talks about obviously the three different groups that they were put in, the 330,000 people, how it was done. But notice one thing, which I love about the word. God doesn't give a lot of, spend a lot of time talking about the enemy because he's annihilated so quickly. It's so fast because when God comes to rescue, the enemy deserves zero explanation. He deserves nothing, not even to be talked about because when God comes to rescue, he crushes and annihilates the enemy exactly what he does. But we want to be as how Paul, when I think of starting well, we all want to start well but how awful and unfortunate we see ministers and Christians who start well and then by the end of their life they fall to pieces. They start going downhill. They end up getting caught up in an adulterous affair. They get caught up in all kinds of things. Next thing you know they're no longer around. I've had friends that I've known for years who were very, very accomplished in a lot of different ways, and now they hate God. They could out-preach me any day of the week, and now they hate God. They knew the gospel inside and out. They knew all the little Reformed language, the things that we say perfectly. Now they hate God. Even one of them's turned into a skeptic. So let us start well finish well. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As with every true Christian, the first fruits of our salvation is to extend help to others by declaring Christ to them, that they too can be delivered from the tyrant of sin and oppression. You mean this really should be the first fruits of a believer? is that obviously there's this up uprising of love for God and almost astonishment that he saved you, right? And you just have this this, this, this awe of who God is. You just enjoy God. But a, a, a um, secondary reaction to the primary is that we would be extending to others Christ who has saved us. I mean, God has given us The body of Christ is God's means and mouthpiece to bring the gospel to lost people around the world. It isn't like we just hide out and then God does the work for us. We're the means of God. People are the means and by which God saves people. It's us. He uses people, saved human beings, to reach other human beings. This is God's way. It'll never change. It's usually more unlikely. most of the time, you're going to uh, get involved in evangelism. is isn't going to be on Facebook or any other social media platform. It's going to be face-to-face. And you'll find face-to-face is sometimes the most challenging and the most difficult, but it's the biggest threat to the enemy, and that's why you feel that way. But this is the fruits that come out of us. If you're truly converted and you're in shock that God could save you, how could you not tell somebody else? Think of the last time you shared your faith. When's the last time you told somebody the gospel? When is the last time? And I'm not saying like raise your hands or feel guilty. I'm just saying ask yourself, when is the last time you've shared your faith with another human being? And ask yourself, why, 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 why am I not doing this? I remember I, was in, I owned a gym for five years and it was under the shadow of the Mormon temple and I had Mormons. I had huge Mormons. Mormon. The thing was just run. I had all Mormons, right? And I was just terrified because I didn't know what to say. You know, they had all the answers, right? The textbook stuff, they get you tripped up and stuff and, and I would train them and they would just use that time to you know to, to proselytize me and i just get so infuriated. And it all leave day in day out, day in day out, my blood started pumping and my conviction began to overtake me. I said, "I just can't live like this anymore. I'm a Christian. I have the gospel. I'm saved. They're not. I have got to learn. Even as Spurgeon said, it is a difficult, tired, tiresome, irksome task to learn how to win souls. But I could not stand living the other way. I can't live like a coward my whole life. I've got to learn how to speak up. I've got to train myself to deal with these people. And I did. I learned how to deal with it. And one thing led to another, to the point where God had utilized me in some ways in evangelism that I'm still thanking Him for today. And it's no credit to myself. I just couldn't stand the other route. I just couldn't stand idly by and not say anything when I had the only answer. God is good. Let me tell you, God is good. And then we see the allegiance from the people. This is, this, is, this is really interesting. In verse 10, verse 10 says, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll come out to you. Really? Yes. And you may do with us whatever seems good. That's such a wonderful thing because what is that saying? That's saying that the people are now submitted to the king. He's coming. Okay. Okay. He's coming to save us. We'll meet you out there. You can do, use us however you see fit, master. Use me however you see fit to advance your kingdom. They were glad indeed. They willingly submitted to the king. And remember this, a true sign of humility is a submission to God-ordained authority. Just remember that. You'll find someone who rebels against authority or rebels against everything, like rebels against the church, rebels against the pastor, rebels against the government, rebels against everything, you'll find that that person's a rogue. And a lot of times they do more damage than good. Because the Bible says, you know, that um, stubbornness, you know, is, is like witchcraft. You know, God sees that attitude of being stubborn and not being able to submit to authority as vile and wicked. There's a whole generation now in our generation that hates authority. They want to remove any kind of authority, whether it be the police or whatever it may be. They want to annihilate authority. You see, this is a this is a this is a heart of an unredeemed person that can't submit to authority. It really is because if you can't submit to the authorities that God has given throughout the government, you will not submit to God. Trust me. These are indications. Of how you submit to the Lord is how you submit to those in whom God has given power over you. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, the one rebelling against the authority has resisted the ordinance of God, and those having resisted will bring judgment upon themselves. That's right. This isn't just government officials either. God has ordained authority within the home, within the church, and within the state. The church, it says, Hebrews 13, 17, for those of you that want to hear a verse about how we should submit to leaders in the church, here's one for you. Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. There's one if you want to see where God has ordained authority within the context of the church, between man and woman. We see another authority here. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, people get really irate when they hear that one, right? But we see the word or put in there. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And this is big because, because ultimately this, is, this was how God, this is the created order of God. I didn't create that order. It's not my fault. The reality is this is the order that God has placed upon people. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Household, 1 Timothy 3.4 He must manage his house and family well, having children who respect and obey Him. It's not just in the church, not just the state, but it's also in your home. There is a government in your home as well where the husband, the man, is the head. And the woman's underneath him. And then you have the children that need to be in submission as well. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, which he's referring to, Exodus 20.12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God has given you. Jesus Even takes it a step further in Matthew 15, 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And check this out. This is from Christ in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. He says this, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Wow. In the New Testament. It's pretty serious, right? I mean, think about that. 1 Timothy 3, five. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the church of God? And this is how important authority is. It's not being a tyrant. It's not being a dictator. It's being a servant. But we see how God's established authority is set up. And we must submit to that if you want to see any kind of blessing and peace in your home or in this church or in this nation. Now, we're not to obey and submit to wicked rulers who are commanding us to do things against the, our conscience and the word of God. The word of God is primo. It surpasses, it usurps any king or any president or any authority that causes you to sin against God. You say no. You willfully resist. But the point here that I'm trying to make is this, is that we saw willful submission from the army from Israel under Saul's leadership once he came for help. And I just wanted to highlight that just for a moment. didn't want to get too far away, but understanding how powerful it is, that one verse there, when you see the submission of people coming under the king. If they won't submit to him, if they won't respect him, you're not going to win. You're going to get destroyed. And then we see fourth deliverance. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered and that no two of them were left together. At Bezek, the place was like they had a general role. They had a list. It wasn't too far from Shechem. On the road to Bethshan, and nearly opposite of the fort of the crossing of Jabesh-Gilead, the great number on this roll, this list, showed the effect of Saul's wisdom and his promptitude. Saul knew what he was doing. And I would say it was by the Spirit of God when, it, when he was moved into angry indignation. I believe that, I, I mean, I can only speculate, but I can only see that Saul's wisdom, he didn't have really a wisdom of a commander like this to be able to do this. It only had to come from the Lord himself. And they literally just annihilated, annihilated the Ammonites. And then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them, bring them men that we may put them to death. And we, we know that that came from those, um, they called them um, fools and, and from Belial. And they were those who would not follow Saul and instead began to rebel against him, which was opposite of submission. They said, Let's kill those folks. How dare they say that? And you notice here, which is really extremely important, we see the people of God now backing their king. We see such a high respect for Saul and honoring their king for what he has done and that he's rescued them, that their attitude is all honor. How dare anybody speak against our king? Where are they? Because we know they said something. Let's kill him. And it was exactly as Saul said. No no one, not a man should be put to death today. Uh uh not after this victory. For today, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Let there be no more bloodshed. Let's not kill anybody. Let's show mercy and grace. God has just delivered us. Let's celebrate. Then the confirmation. Saul has now proven his ability to reign, and he is reconfirmed as king by Samuel, by Samuel and the people at Gilgal. And then Samuel said, hey, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. See, in Gilgal there was a sanctuary. And after great doings on the field of battle, we must be reminded always to return to the house of prayer. We must indeed return to the place where it all began. We should enter upon no conflict until after we had been in the sanctuary. And having completed the conflict, we should return to the altar. And we know that Gilgal was one of the circuit places where Samuel had his circuit, and there's where the sanctuary, and there's where the altar was. And that's where they went to worship their Lord and to um, reignite or reconfirm Saul's kingship. At Gilgal, the kingdom was renewed, and at Gilgal, indeed, the kingship of Saul was consummated. Saul had to prove himself before many would accept his reign as king. It is one thing for a person to be anointed or appointed, but the evidence must be in the doing. It seemed, you know, and we think about this, is that, as I finish here, um, you know, we think about this, 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 this whole thing that just happened uh, with this great, great victory. It all points to Christ. I mean, it really all points to our rescuer. It all points to our Redeemer and how He has rescued us. And it seemed even many of Christ's disciples had different plans as well. I mean, they thought Jesus was going to stomp and thrash the Romans, but scattered when they saw their dreams and shattered with the torches and the kiss of Judas. It must have been a lonely walk up to Via della Rosa Boulevard, agonizing underneath the cross and under the crosshairs of the wrath of Almighty God. Christ never took his eyes off from the cross, brothers and sisters. Everything you see in Scripture wasn't nature walks and picking apples and hanging out with the boys. Everything had a purpose. Not one thing that Christ did in the New Testament didn't have some sort of purpose that was taken to the cross. Everything was dialed in perfectly. He was going to the cross, and everything was in context. Everything he did, everything he said, every place that he went, all fell into the same game plan as the cross. Satan tempted him. Peter tried to distract him. The Jews tried to kill him. The Romans made fun of him. And the people abandoned him. But he never lost sight of Calvary. Not once. And thank God. Remember this. Coming about demands. When demands come in your life, in which they will, sometimes they come from every direction. Never make peace with the enemy. Never, ever make peace with the enemy. Instead, become desperate. Default to desperation. And don't take the easy way out because eventually it'll be slavery and it'll be worse off than when you started. Get desperate. In times of great distress, do what the people of God did. They cried out to Saul. Cry out to God. Cry out to the King of Kings. The decree. Seek shelter in Christ, but also in the local church. Do this. I tell you this for your own soul, for your own sake, not for my benefit. Honestly. We want you here. Okay, you need to be with the family of God and deliverance. Your deliverance will come eventually. It may not come when you expect it and when you commanded it, but it'll come. Most certainly, it will come one way or another. It'll either come in your lifetime or it'll come in your death, but it will come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, how greatly I have failed, Lord, to even. Keep many of those things, Lord, that you remind me of in this this exact sermon today. Help me, Lord. Lord, help me move into deeper waters. Lord, I pray over the church today, Lord, that we would join as one man, that we would unify for the glory of Christ, that we'd put away childish things. We begin to put all of our efforts into one thing, that's the worship of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Joe, for that beautiful message. For that wonderful.